I'd ask you to turn once again in your copy of God's Word to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll be reading the same passage we read last week. I had a lot of extra thoughts last week that I chose to, to not make it a longer sermon than it was. Um, but most of our look at the verses themselves we did last week. So I apologize for that if there's not a lot of engaging with the text, specifically this week, reflecting more on, on the topic itself, worship. But let's read the verses um, let's read the verses again, and then I'm actually going to read a couple of verses from Second uh, Chronicles 11 as well. First Kings 12, beginning in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he offered on the altar, which he had made at Bethel, on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he ordained the feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. And then I'm going to read a few verses from the parallel passage, Second Chronicles chapter 11, beginning at verse 13. And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with King Rehoboam. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons, ESV, for the goat idols, and the calf idols which he had made, 
And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong for three years because they walked in the ways of David and Solomon for three years. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this, your word. We thank you, although sad things are written in it, we know that they are given for our instruction. And we would have our king teach us or rebuke us as we need. So, Father, be with us this evening. May your son work in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, seven or eight, somewhere in there, first grade Sunday school, um, uh, a boy started attending Sunday school and then church with his, his single mother and quickly became one of my best friends. Um, but not long after they started coming to the church, he leaned over to me right before the morning service started, leaned across the pew and, and said something like, are my mom and I going to congregationalize now? And I, being self-righteous and stuck up or whatever I was back then, I, I thought, obviously, we all know that that isn't a word. You worship, congregational isn't, isn't a verb. You don't congregationalize. Well, maybe some people, I don't know. I, I remember thinking how stupid of a question it was, because we all know that it's worship. And yet, I was reflecting this week, I wonder how much I understood what worship was when that simple question was asked to me, and I kind of mocked my new friend. This last week, I picked up a book, and uh, the section that was going to be on Reformed worship in that book started with four pages discussing two Hebrew words and one Greek word for worship. And I saw how long it was, and I thought, Oh, scholars. I mean, it's worship. Do we need the word study? I, I, I said that. Uh, we all know what worship is, and that's why we translate it worship. Do we need the word study? I wanted to get to how we worship. And I realized that perhaps, like my humble friend long ago, who didn't quite know if he was worshiping yet or not, and didn't know what congregational versus worship was, maybe, maybe sometimes we start at the wrong point. Maybe we need to step back and humbly say, what is worship? What is worship? Do we even really know what it is at its heart? I want to reflect, I planned on a sermon on the regulative principle, and in one sense, this sort of will be, and in one sense, it'll be a very different sermon than I went into last week thinking I would preach, because sometimes we can think about all the stuff that goes into worship without reflecting on what worship is. Sort of like if there's two ways you could answer a question like, what is uh 
a souffle. And one person might go in and list all the ingredients. And that's not going to help the majority of us understand anything about a souffle. And another person might describe the way it feels on the tongue, the type of flavor palette it has. And that's really getting more to the heart of what a souffle is, isn't it? Not the technique, but what it is. And I think sometimes we start with the technique or the ingredients of worship, but we don't slow down to ask, what is worship? That book that had the four pages on the Hebrew words for worship, at the end of those four pages, had this statement, which humbled me exceedingly. Joseph Moorcraft writes, in worship, here's his definition, in worship, God's people, as his servants, bow before his sovereignty and give him that submission which he, as their sovereign savior, deserves and demands of them. The Hebrew words for worship denote the service rendered by a willing slave bowing down before his master, whom he cherishes, end quote. He didn't tell you one thing about what you're supposed to do in worship. Actually, he told you everything about what you're supposed to do in worship, didn't he? But you can't make a bulletin based on that. And I think that's an important thought. I think we need to slow down and reflect on what worship is and not just the parts of what we do when we're doing it. That's an important discussion too. And I know I've preached those sermons. There's a three-part series of those sermons on our website, God's Rule for Worship. There's uh, another video that's 40 minutes long. It was the longest one in our Pillars series. Most of them were 20 minutes-ish. The one on the regular principle of worship is 40 minutes long. So I've done all of that. I want us to make sure, though, that in the context of having reformed worship, we remember what worship actually is and what we're doing as we come here. I think Moorcraft's right. We need to reflect on what worship is. And by doing a four-page survey of the Hebrew words for worship, he uncovered that one of them is almost exclusively used of what a slave does for his master, willingly bowing down before the master whom he cherishes. Is that what you are doing as you walk through the Grange doors or as you walk through these doors? I I pray that that is what is in our hearts. So I want to reflect on on this very basic point that I've made a a bit more this evening. But I also want to encourage us as we think about how how we can encourage one another in real good worship as well. And for that, I, I do want to just go back to our texts here even though some of this will be repetition of last week a little bit, I want to reflect on leaders and on congregations at worship. We have a leader in Jeroboam, and Jeroboam, uh, well, he doesn't see himself as a servant of God, does he? If we had to boil down what his problem is with his worship, we could go to the regular principle, which is what I did last week, and show all the biblical ways why, why, why he's wrong. But what's at the heart behind even that? 
he doesn't see himself as a servant of God. It's unclear whether he believes God really exists or not, I think. But even if he does, he certainly doesn't see himself as God's servant. This week I read A.W. Tozer summarizing uh, what the problem was with the worship that Cain brought in Genesis 4. And Tozer's summary of Cain's problem of worship, I thought, you could replace Cain with Jeroboam in this quote, and it would all be true. It's the same problem. So A.W. Tozer sums up Cain's worship issues. One, he didn't understand who God was. Two, he didn't understand how seriously God takes our sins. And three, he therefore assumed he had the right to a relationship with God that would lead to his being accepted in worship. He didn't understand who God was. He didn't understand the nature of his own sin before God. Therefore, he assumed or presumed that he had a relationship with God that would mean God had to accept him in worship. A pure relationship, perhaps. Or if there was a superior, it's Cain. And I think all of that is absolutely true of Jeroboam. He views himself as equal to or greater than Yahweh God, if Yahweh even exists. And so he goes down this path of leading the people astray in their worship to such ridiculous things, to calves of gold. We, we, how ridiculous that is. Uh, I, I think I noted as I was reading it in Chronic, uh, Second Chronicles that he set up, and uh, he, he, in the New King James it says, uh, he had priests for the, the high places for the demons and the calf idols. And I like the ESV there, because uh, the, demons can also be translated goats. And both are legitimate translations, which is fitting, isn't it? He exchanged the invisible God's worship for the worship of goats and cows and demons. He does all of this because he has a wrong view of God. He doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand sin. We also see his lack of understanding of sin, don't we? He exchanged the Passover and the Day of Atonement for a feast of his own invention. He exchanged the cross, in other words. Because Hebrews shows us that the Passover and, and the Day of Atonement were the Old Testament shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. But he replaces that with something that's like it, but it isn't it. Showing that he doesn't understand the nature of his own sin and the, the consequential need for atonement, which he has and he doesn't understand he doesn't understand the nature therefore of the relationship or the danger for the relationship because of his sin and so he can replace the mediators with any old mediator he wants why cuz well 
it's no longer an issue of the Holy God telling you the only people through whom he will hear you. No, we can dictate to God who's going to represent us. Now, Jeroboam's the leader in this false religion, but we sadly note that the vast majority of Israel went right along with him. These are people, many of whom were alive in Solomon's reign. At the height of the, the platinum age of Israel, with the temple of God in Jerusalem, people who, unless they were already breaking God's law, were three times a year entering Jerusalem, entering God's temple for these feast days, the Feast of Booths, the Passover, the Day of Atonement. And they this easily exchange the worship of God for convenience and goats and bulls. They don't question it. Now, there is a special judgment for Jeroboam as the leader leading people astray. But every one of the people will also be held accountable for not rejecting Jeroboam's leadership. On the other hand, we also see a positive thing about leaders and congregations in worship, and that's why I had us read from 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles there shows us the, the Levites, and it, it may not be every single individual Levite in the entire northern tribes, but it's the majority of them, right? Because it can be worded by the author here, the Levites. The, the whole group of them, the vast majority of them, they left their common lands and possessions and came to Judah. I, I don't recall what I said about that last week. I'll say it again if I said it last week. Um, don't think that what they were leaving was country life for a glamorous city job. Most priests would only serve in the temple one or two times in their lifetime. The majority of priests taught and circumcised and catechized and uh, did various basic things like that in small communities throughout Israel. By moving to Judah, they're not increasing their likelihood of being at the temple. Because now there's going to be more men serving at the temple. These men are not leaving something that is country-ish for something that is more glamorous. In fact, they could have had a much more self-serving position in northern Israel. When you exchange one temple for a, a high place on every hill, well then you can be the big fish in a little pond on a little hill. They would have had probably more local esteem by staying and serving under Jeroboam's leadership. But they chose the poverty, so to speak, leaving their homelands, leaving their farms, going to Judah, where they are not going to be more well esteemed, except, of course, by God. 
and those who love and fear the Lord. And that's exactly what we see here, isn't it? Uh, I like how Second Chronicles even verbalizes this. The Levites and priests took their stand with Rehoboam. Why? Because they'd been rejected by Jeroboam. That, that almost sounds like taking an easy out once you've already been fired. But I think what Second Chronicles is telling us is that first they refused to play ball with Jeroboam. No, we won't do this. You don't have the authority to have us do this. This is what God's word says. Therefore, Jeroboam said, I can replace you. There are plenty, plenty of jobless men in Dan and Ephraim. I can get them to do this job instead of you. And therefore, they went to Jerusalem. But their leadership pays off, doesn't it? Because then we read, after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They didn't necessarily move away from their homes, but they continued worshiping in the way God had prescribed. They came down to sacrifice at the feasts. They followed the Levites and priests in the true religion. And what a wonderful thing that is to hear. Uh, for us, it can be sometimes discouraging to be a church that desires to uphold biblical worship because you know you might lose something. The leaders of the church are, are challenged by this anytime they have to think through something difficult about the life of the church or something unpopular. You immediately are attacked by Satan, saying, if you do this, you will lose friends. Or at the very least, you will lose people in the pew. And when Satan's really trying to be uh, devious, you'll, you'll lose tithe money. Things like that. You can't afford. You can't afford it. But what we see set before us here is that God's people, God's people, true people, those who fear and love the Lord, will come along with leaders who set that example. And so let us all be encouraged. There is unity among God's people when we serve the Lord. It may be hard to spot in this life, and it can be discouraging. But look back at Second Chronicles chapter 11 when you're discouraged. Here are those who served the Lord. And of those who continued to go to worship in Jerusalem, you can be sure that the same is true for them as those who were after the exile in Jerusalem and received the message of God's prophets, that God wrote their names in a book of remembrance. They were not forgotten. There in Chronicles, we have them considered. We don't know their names. We don't even know which tribes they came from. And someday in glory, we will get to worship eternally with people who care that much about getting worship right. And isn't that the congregation you want to be a part of? The heavenly congregation 
with those types of priests worshiping next to you, this is what should motivate us in our worship. So let's encourage one another in that. We do want to worship God according to his word. And Jeroboam, of course, sets the prime example of everything that's the opposite of that. And sadly, so reflected in the church today. Um, but I think, as I already stated, there, there could be a danger for us in the Reformed tradition as well. And that is that we could approach something like biblical worship like a checkbox approach. So I think I mentioned this to the elders on Friday in a conversation. Um, you know, most books on Reformed worship, you pull off the shelf, they, they state the principle of worship. Worship the way God tells us to. And then everything after that is, well, what are the parts of worship according to God? Call to worship, singing, confession, scripture, whatever, tithes, which is all good, and we need to consider all of that. God does have to set the content and indeed much of the way about which we go in worship. But the danger with this, as I already said earlier, is that we need to remember the internal part of worship as well. So when I say the regular principle of worship is that we worship as God tells us to worship, we can't just think about the parts of the service because God also tells us about internal worship, what he expects from your heart. And we could easily miss that. When we only look at the external, what does the bulletin's order of worship contain? When we only look at these things, we become legalistic in our worship. Check the boxes. And sadly, as we continue in 1 Kings, we're going to find that down in Judah, re recall how Second Chronicles worded it? For three years there was blessing? Because they sought the Lord? What happened after three years? Wait, wait a second. You know, the worship continued. They were still checking their boxes. But something changed. It's because they forgot about the internal side of it. And, and how easy that is to spot in others, isn't it? Growing up, the the purely external aspect of, for example, for a lot of my Catholic friends, and I'm not saying this about all Catholics because I know godly Catholics, I believe, are truly brothers and sisters now, but at that point in my life, all the Catholics I knew, it felt like a check-the-boxes approach to worship. You do this, this, and this, and then you're pardoned. Uh, well, our worship can be like that too. I was there on Sunday morning. We didn't have... We didn't have worldly worship. We had reformed worship. We didn't have worldly music. We had biblical music. You can check through all the boxes and then conclude, therefore, I am holy and right before God. But if we do that, we're, we're not keeping God's rule of worship. I know I'm beating this point very hard, but I... I I want us to not be legalistic. 
I'm not accusing any of you of being legalistic, but maybe at least at this point in my life, I need to be guarding that I am not as I teach others. And so, for example, uh, Joseph Moorcraft, who gave that wonderful definition of worship as a willing slave bowing down before the master whom he cherishes, he, he has this to say about both internal and external worship. The worship of God is both internal and external. It is internal in that, in essence, it consists in fearing, loving, praising, calling upon, trusting in, and serving the Lord with all the heart, soul, strength, and mind, all of which show themselves in holiness of behavior externally. It is external in that faith without works is dead. Adoring worship in the heart will manifest itself in public worship of God according to the way he has commanded in his word. The worship of God takes place in the heart of the Christian and shows itself in the actions of the body. I'm not sure if he means your body or the body of Christ, but either way he'd be right. Let me read that sentence again. The worship of God takes place in the heart of the Christian and shows itself in the actions of the body. Worship without heart, but with body, is hypocrisy and is hated by God. We, we should reflect on that. Christ said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jeroboam didn't honor God with his lips or his heart. But it's not good enough for us to just say, well, we honor him with our lips if our hearts are far from him. Remember what Christ says definitively about worship in the new covenant age? Worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, you can take that as the in the Holy Spirit and the truth, and Jesus says he is the truth. Or you can take that as in your spirit, meaning sincerely. Both end at the same place, don't they? God the Father is seeking those who would worship him from the heart, sincerely. And that sincerity then should play itself out in us seeking to be biblical in the what we do, the ingredients of worship as well. Well, we'll come back to consider Jeroboam and God's comments on his worship, Lord willing, next week. But let us all reflect on this challenge that Christ not someday look at us and say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Let's pray.